We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. There we go. There we go. Zach Withers on the case, driving the music back at the shop with uh, the piano portion of the second half of Layla, as discussed by Pat Hughes. Good morning, it's Inside the Clubhouse. I'm Matt Spiegel and Bruce Levine. Nice to hear this. It is, uh, you know, I have to say Clapton, you know, give me your top, uh, top three guitar players of all time. Oh boy. That's, Come on, that's, that's, you're that's the music well, guy. Yeah, no, but here's the thing I hadn't realized about Clapton is that, and my guitar player friends have, have instructed me, that he basically invented modern rock guitar with some of the technological things that he did, the way that he drove the sound, the way that he played certain strings and styles, that he doesn't get some of the credit that he deserves. Um, that said, I'll take Hendrix over Clapton. Um, and boy, Jeff Beck? Yeah. Um, you know what? You, you just know, named my top three. Did I? Did I? Yeah, but but I think they're interchangeable now because of the fact that, uh, you know, Hendrix, you know, such, such a master of uh, distortion and, you know, the range that he had in his music was short-lived compared to Clapton's, you know, 50 years. Um, right. Yet uh, the impact that Hendrix had is always going to make him number one, Matt. It's it's just, yeah. it just is you know and uh, uh, but Clapton for the the volume of tremendous work oh, the range between blues and rock and even country in uh, form when he was working with Delaney and Bonnie back in the early seventies uh, that that in itself uh, creates uh, you know a, a master that is unequaled over that period of time yeah and I, it's, um, it's Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, and Stevie Ray Vaughan deserves to mention uh, Jimmy Page yeah. for some of everything that came afterward. There's, yeah. there's, there, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of folks. Try, try Mike Bloomfield when you go back. Yeah, Bloomfield, you, you, Cooper, you, and Stills. That Super Sessions with and, their version uh, the, of Season of the Witch. Yes. Try the Electric Flag, uh, and okay. you will hear some amazing stuff with him and Buddy Miles and Herbie Rich and a bunch of uh, tremendous. Tremendous musicians and singers during that time period. So uh, you, we could probably do a couple hours on just uh, great guitar players and have fun with that at some point. I hope we don't get to that point because it used to be called Inside the Clubhouse. The show is about baseball still, isn't it? Uh, I believe I believe it is. Yes, Bruce. And uh, just just to bring us down as as far as we can go into reality, I wanted to um, to re- bring something up uh, to your attention, to the listeners attention about the seriousness, about why we're even considering games without fans. There's an article from the AP this week about a soccer game that took place on February 19th in Italy, where uh, 2,500 fans of the visiting team traveled and more than 35,000 fans of the Bergamo um, soccer team in Italy were all there. So we had about 40,000 people in the stands 
and experts are calling this game um, game zero, as in patient zero, because two day, this was two days before the first case of locally transmitted COVID-19 was confirmed in Italy. This game took place. And they think that as many as seven to eight to 9,000 people handed the virus back and forth to each other at that game. And you ended up with 2,600 people infected uh, very quickly in that region. 7,000 people in the province eventually tested positive. 1,000 people died. And this was the effect of 40,000 people hugging and kissing while standing you know, an inch apart and cheering on a soccer team, 30% of one of the soccer teams ended up infected. So this is the kind of fear. This is what the science is telling us you have to try and avoid. It's why baseball is going to consider having games without fans. When we come back, Joe Montaigne, who is the great co-founder and uh, performer of the Bleacher Bums, a great TV and movie career, uh, Chicago Cub fan, legendary from Cicero, who is uh, a noted Chicagoan, will join Matt and I as we uh, discuss some of the things of his career as well as his uh, baseball interests. Uh, you are welcome here, and we hope you join us at 312-644-6767. We're on until 11 o'clock, and then Rosie and Mark Grody will take over for us and have a good time uh, from that point on. 670 The Score is where you are, this hour of which is brought to you by 90NorthShomburg.com. We'll come back in a moment on Inside the Clubhouse on The Score. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Welcome back in on Inside the Clubhouse right here on 670 The Score. Matt Spiegel and Bruce Levine with you. And as we uh, as we await our next guest, Bruce, um, it, it's some of the creative ideas that have been taking place about what baseball will be, how it will be structured, when it comes back, if it comes back. I, I must say, I, I have my issues with some of the things in the agreement, but overall, I'm pleased to see this sport working together and and finalizing an agreement like they did yesterday so the table is set for open-minded kind of creative conversation of how to deal with this very awkward year it's going to be weird no matter what so it's just the fact that they have a framework to talk more as soon as we know more scientifically is a good thing and i wasn't even sure we'd get there frankly yeah i agree with you matt uh, the, the cooperation and you hope that this cooperation extends not only uh, beyond the 2020 season, but in the future to kind of realize how important uh, their roles are, how how important each other, each side is. And, uh, you know, we keep hearing about the animosity between the two sides and how it's going to be a difficult conversation when they're discussing a new CBA after the 2021 season. But in reality, uh, this type of wake-up call for everybody in all phases of business in the world that we're in right now might be something that gets them to the table a little quicker with a little bit better open attitude about 
even suggesting there could be a lockout or a uh, a walkout by the players. I mean, uh, that would be, you know, after what we're going to be dealing with now, that would be so unacceptable to a sports in general and the sport of baseball itself that you hope yeah. that this would be a something that, that pushes them forward to getting something done quicker than waiting to, for the deadline in uh, November of 2021. Yeah, you know, it would be so unseemly and feel so so filthy and people would be upset about it. So that should give the players a push, but you hope it gives the owners a push too to like not go hardline on some things so terribly. And the game is bigger than either of those groups. It, it is. It, it's bigger than all of us. It has lasted for you know, more than a century through multiple wars and different work stoppages. And, and, and it's just bigger than, than all of us. And it's importance in society. You know, people miss it so desperately. People miss nonsense. They miss the things that they don't have to um, care about to the point of life and death. They miss those kind of things and the companion that baseball is. And, and hopefully both sides kind of realize that at a moment like this. Our show topic today, uh, 312-644-6767 and text at 6711 is, will baseball be hollow? Will it be acceptable to you? Would it be good enough uh, when it comes back and there are no fans? Logic tells you, Matt, that um, coming back and, uh, you know, resuming after a three, three weeks of a spring training type situation and then pushing, you know, the pedal to the metal on, 30,000 or 40,000 fans in the stands just doesn't resonate with the common sense aspect of this. So from that perspective, would empty stadiums or a limited amount of people in stands be acceptable to you going forward? Again, 312-644-6767. And again, Matt, we all agree we want our baseball, we want our sports back, and we'll take it in any form. But again, for how long and how, how much would it uh, be able to resonate if there were no fans in the stands? I think baseball might have the good fortune of not having to be first on that. If it's a situation we're getting to, I mean, the NBA, uh, I think, is going to try and find a way to be back as soon as conceivable, as soon as it's safe. Um, there's this idea of... of of quarantining certain teams and maybe having them play, you know, if they've all been tested. And, and obviously those kind of things will, will have to get worked through and we'll see what happens. But point being, the NBA might end up uh, before MLB in terms of that experimentation. But we'll talk about it more. And the phone lines are open at 312-644-6767. Right now our next guest joins us on the Alpamonte Ford hotline, Alpamonte Ford in Melrose Park. A great Chicagoan, a great TV, and a great movie actor, our friend Joe Montagna, nice enough to take some time from California on a Saturday morning to join us on Inside the Clubhouse. Joe, Matt, and Bruce with you. Thank you for taking some time out. Good morning to you. Hey, good morning to you guys. Yeah, we appreciate it very much. You know, I was telling Matt and the audience earlier, you and I were supposed to be at a a fundraiser last week in uh, Mesa for uh, raising money for the Special Olympics. And it was supposed to be at the Sheridan Hotel in Mesa. Uh, it was going to be a great night for Chicago Cubs. And uh, obviously that was uh, that was called off. And now we're having you here a week later to talk a little bit about 
some of the things in your career and some of the things going on. Let's let's go all the way back. Uh, you know, your career started in the late '60s uh, in in TV, but mostly uh, in uh, in plays and writing and co-writing. The Bleacher Bums. Where did the where did the impetus come from for Bleacher Bums for you personally as a Chicagoan? Well, what what it was was I've been a member of the Organic Theater in Chicago at that time for about well, four or five years, where we would do uh, and our plays would come from you know different places. We would do exist take novels and turn them into plays. And our our, our director, our esteemed director, actually just passed away uh, last week, Stuart Gordon. Uh, we'd come up with an idea and we'd work on it. And whatever. They came from different sources. Sometimes they were existing plays. But this was the summer of 77, and we had done our, our season that year, and we'd basically run out of all of our grant money. We had about $200 left, and it was we had a choice to try to come up with a play that would cost less than $200 or basically uh-huh. take the summer uh-huh. off and, uh, and and wait till our grant money started to come in in the fall. Um so we, we had a meeting in the theater, and I remember Stewart asked all of us, he said, look, if anybody has an idea for a play that costs less than $200, maybe we can do something. And I, being an avid Cub fan since I was, you know, five years old at least, uh, I would, and I'd go to the bleachers, and the kind of money I was making, you know, as an actor in Chicago, the bleachers is where, where you're going to wind up, because back then I think seats were about a buck and a quarter. Uh, I sat in this one section of the right center field bleachers where I just used to amaze me that what was going on there. In other words, I thought to myself, wow, this is as entertaining as the game. You know, because you got to remember the clubs in the late 60s were, uh, might have been entertaining, but not so entertaining that it was going to, if you were a huge baseball fan, was going to light your fire every game. So what was going on in the stands was, I found to be quite amusing and interesting and kind of reflective of what being a baseball fan was all about. So I, I, I raised my hand and says, I have this idea for a play. I said, if you all will join me to my section in the bleachers in Wrigley Field, the Cubs were doing a homestand at that time. I said, you tell me if you agree that there's a play there. So I, I, we all tramped down to, to Wrigley Field and we spent the next three days you know, sitting in that, my section of the bleachers there. And when we came back from the, the, the field trip, we all agreed that without question, <laughs> there, there was the, this, this was the makings of perhaps good theater. And uh, luckily, you know, we'd all been together for many years. Dennis Franz was a member of that company. Uh, it, it, it was just a beautiful kind of combination of people. And, and with the guidance of, of Stuart Gordon and, and another a good friend of his, Dennis Paoli, who was also a writer he had known since they were kids together, uh, we did a lot of hours of improvs, putting together this scenario of creating this, basically creating a baseball game, a nine-inning baseball game that would deal, you know, with the, you know, starting with the beginning of the, the game, go through the game, end with the game uh, ending, sing the seventh inning stretch through the whole game. Uh, the Cubs-St. Louis game, but you, from the perspective of you looking at this section of the bleachers, so our audience sat actually in the center of the theater, and we sat up in the risers, which used to be the seats. That's why we were able to do it so cheaply, because we had no set. We sat up where the <laughs> audience would usually sit in the theater. We took the seats out and sat up on the, on the concrete risers. And for costumes, we all went to AMVETS on Wednesday, which would have half-price day, and we would just buy clothes like you'd wear to a baseball game. So the whole show probably cost less than $200, but it wound up 
as it turned out, probably being one of the most successful plays the organic ever did. So it was just, you know, Cubs luck. You know, we, 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 uh, we it all worked out. And it was just, a, it's been a big thrill for me that to this day, it's still being produced uh, many places all over the world, especially at Summerstock. Well, what, what, what a great, what a great, what a great story, Joe, and, and so many things in there. I love the idea of, of professional research being three days in the bleachers. Nice, nice work if you can get yeah. it. The, uh, um, oh, yeah. but, but, but it makes so much sense um, because baseball, really more than any other sport, it lends itself to, to literature, to poetry. There's so much music. And there's so, so much incredible, there's drama. Why do you think the game itself, is it the failure, the volume of failure that's in it? Is it the pacing of it, the constancy of a season? Why do you think the game lends itself to art better than other sports? Well, I think, I think a lot of that is true. I think one of the main reasons is that there's not a clock involved. Um, there's no time limit on the games in the sense that unless it gets too dark or it starts to rain or, you know, something, un, un, you know, unnatural happens to interrupt it. And so it's in a way it's like life that way. I mean, they've, they've tried to put some sort of restrictions on it, you know, here and there, but at the end of the day, it has, it does have its own pace as does life. So you never quite know when, when, when are the times that it's going to get, you know, lag. When's it going to be exciting? When's it going to start? That, that was in a way that that's what, cause the play in other words to work because you can kind of uh use the ebb and flow of the game to kind of do the drama of the play i mean there's, there always has to be that little break in the action between innings and you know during when they're changing a picture picture or something like that or maybe one inning's going on for 20 minutes and another inning's going on for two, two minutes so i think that's part of it and, uh, you know, it's the summertime. It's, it's all of those things. It's the smell, it's the sound, the, like you say, the music. I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's very Americana, I guess, in many ways, too, uh, uh, what we think of it. It's very Norman Rockwell-esque, you know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I guess it's, you know, I just think back to being a kid and my dad taking me there, you know, when I was, like I say, under five years old and looking out on that field and, and seeing how, I'll give you one, one, one thing that I think explains it well. There's one character in the play, Beecher Bumps, who's blind. And we based it on three of these guys who used to sit in the foot section, and all three of them were blind. But we combined them into one character named, the real guy's name was Craig, who to this day is, a, is one of those sportscasters at Wrigley Field. Yes, sir. And I, I see him whenever I go to Wrigley to this day, and we mm -hmm. talk. But he, he, he would go with his two friends, and they were all blind. And, and they'd be there, and one guy would have the radio, the other guy would have a cowbell, and the other guy would call the game. So we combined them into one character. So we did all this research about that. And in doing the research, we found out that this one guy, not one of the three, but another blind Cub fan, who had who had gone to all the games, and I, I heard this story from Jack Brickhouse because we interviewed him. He said this hmm. blind guy finally was able to get his vision fixed. They gave him a cornea transplant or whatever it was, and they fixed his vision. And, and then when he came to his first Cub game after the transplant, Brickhouse asked him, he said, I want to ask you, what was it like seeing a baseball game for the first time? Because you've come to all these games, you're a huge fan, and you, 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 know, you, you, you attend the games. What was it like to see it? And he said, the guy said to me, he said, there were two things that struck him. 
He says one was the color green as to how green everything was. You know, that here was this, this, this sense of this color. He says, but the other thing, which was even bigger, was that the men were all normal size. Because he says when you experience the game without sight and you're there in the ballpark and you're hearing the sounds and the roar of the crowds, you're imagining that the men out there playing the game are giants. And that <laughs> these huge be human beings that are like 50 feet tall, sliding around the bases and jumping. And, and he says, ah, oh, they're just normal sized people. And I thought, wow, that's in a way that that's, that's the fantasy we kind of create. As a child, in a way, for the game, in some way. The great actor, writer, producer, and Chicagoan from Cicero, Illinois, Joe Montagna, nice enough to continue to join us here on Inside the Clubhouse. Joe, you not only have one, but two streets named after you, one in Cicero, <laughs> one in Chicago. How many people can say they have two streets in the Chicagoland area named after them. That means you must have done something right along the way. I don't know. I I, I, I guess so. At least I was very good with the, with the, the public works department or something in, in those towns. Uh, but, uh, no, I'm very proud of that. I mean, in, in the sense that I, I, it, it's, it's, it's honored and flattered that, you know, that anyone would think, you know, that the name is street after me. But, but look, Chicago's... Chicago and Cicero both have obviously uh, huge meaning in my life. And, and the fact that the two streets in particular, the one where, where the one sign is in Cicero is right in front of the high school, Morton East High School uh, at 25th and Austin there. And uh, and I spent six years in that building. And there's a lot of people when I say that, they go, six years? You took, you took your six years to get through high school? And I was like, no, actually, they're right. I did the high school there for four years, but back then Morton Junior College was also located in that same building. They have their own school now, but back then in the 60s, it was all the same building. So I spent six years in, in that building. And then and, and in Chicago, it's in front of the River Shannon uh, Bar up on the near north side. It's a wonderful, wonderful bar uh, up on, on Armitage there. And, uh, and when I was a student at the Goodman School of Drama, myself and two of my roommates from school, we all lived... In, a, in an apartment above the bar. And so uh, it, it has very fond memories for me in terms of you know, my growing up in the years that I was learning to be a, an actor as, as a student at, at uh, Martin and Cicero and at college, and then again at the Goodman. So those when you talk, kind of book and my education. Joe, when you talk to Chicagoans, do you come back to the Chicago accent? Are you at home being... Chicagoan, is it north? Is it south? Uh, does it all come back to you when when oh, you, it, you speak it, to Chicagoans? Oh, it's I, you know, I, 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 well, my wife is from Chicago too, so I mean, you know, there's no getting around it. And and the other thing is, you know, Dennis Franz is is still my dear dear friend, and uh, and, and a lot of times, it would, and the dear the dear late Dennis Farina was also a dear friend. And there were times when Dennis Franz and Dennis Farina and I would get together. And I, I, I jokingly say, I say, I'd say, when the three of us get together with our accents, I'm not, I would be surpri not surprised if the Wrigley building would suddenly appear, you know, just kind of, kind of <laughs> manifest itself. <laughs> because we'd find ourselves pretty much kind of talking like you trade guys over there, you know. And, it, and then when I, when, I, when I hosted Saturday Night Live and, and they created that Dalberry's 
skit. Now, the very first one they, they created for me when I hosted the show. And it gave me a chance to really lean into the accent then and not, at the time, not realizing that that skit was then going to go on and my dear friend George Wendt was going to start doing, you know, fly in and do, do a lot of versions of it. And I, and I wound up doing another one with him. And, and so, yeah, I think when I, when I open my mouth, especially when I'm around Chicagoans, nobody mistakes me as being a guy from anywhere else. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> That's it's, uh, it, it's quite a group of talented people you're around there. Um, uh, Joe Montaigne, Dennis Franz, Dennis Farina, obviously your, your collaborator, your great collaborator, David Mamet. And, and for people that don't know, you were a bass player in the Apocryphals, and you guys used to play gigs with this other band, The Missing Links. And The Missing Links go on to become right. Chicago, the band Chicago. And I know you're... You, right. You've been friends with them and been close with them through the years. Did you know, as a bass player and as a musician, did you realize that these guys in the Missing Links, oh, oh yeah, they're really, really good. They're differently good than you were and you guys were. Did you know it? Well, you know, I learned to know it in, in a sense because when we first met them, when they were the Missing Links, they were they were uh, they were good. The, the main good thing about them is they were excellent musicians. They knew how to read music. They, they, they were uh, just terrific musicians. But they weren't doing a lot of uh, uh, original stuff then. And, in fact, when we first played with them, was at, I remember it was the State Fair in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, there, and Bobby Sherman was on the act and the Outsiders and Cannibal and the Headhunters. These were all kind of pop, popular groups back in the 60s. And they would use the, the missing links as the guys who would back up the solo acts because these were, they were the only musicians there that could read music. I mean, all the rest of us would play by ear and we'd copy songs. We were a good cover band, the Apocryphals. And we, and, we, and, we, and we did very well. We were very popular. But the missing links were kind of like, they were, they were pretty straight. They were just kind of like, you know, they played their, their music, but they, they were mainly just really good musicians. Then what happened was we were playing at the Cheetah in Chicago, the old Aragon Ballroom, oh, yeah. which became the Cheetah back in the 60s. And we were wow. playing there, and they came to see us play. And and when they came to see us that night, they said to us, they said, we're changing the band. We're, 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 we're leaving, the, we're getting rid of the name The Missing Links. We're adding a, a, a keyboard player. We're adding a trumpet player. We're adding a trombone player. And, and, and we're going to expand the group to seven guys. We're just going to write our own music, and we're going to call ourselves the Chicago Transit Authority. And we thought, oh, that's interesting. Wow, that's great. And I remember when they left the, the Cheetah that night, we all looked at each other and said, these guys are nuts. What are they doing? <laughs> they're, they're, expanding from, they're expanding from four members to seven. They're never going to make 10 cents. And for, a while, and for a while, they didn't because they were, they were writing their own music. They, were, they would still go to the same clubs we played, and they wouldn't play cover songs that hit Pop 40. They would play their own stuff, and kids weren't hearing the stuff on the radio yet. And so they would go, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. And there was really more than one instance where we would get a call from the owners of the clubs saying, look, we're getting rid of this group, uh, Chicago Transit Authority, and we're going to bring in, uh, you know, you guys come in and fill the rest of the weekend, you know. And we would do it. And, and it was like, oh, we felt bad for them. But then their first album came out. Oh, and boy. They, you know, we didn't hear from yeah. them for a while. Their first album came out. And I remember I was a student at the Goodman, uh, and I was still in the band at the time. That first album came out, and when I heard it, I thought to myself, Okay, it's time for me to change careers. <laughs> because I knew, I knew that the apocryphals 
as good as we were as a cover band, we just never were going to be able to do that, you know. And that's when I really saw the true genius of that group. And, and uh, yeah, we've been friends for over 50 years uh, ever since. And uh, great, great, a great, great band. Still, you know, my favorite. Uh, if you look at episodes of Criminal Minds, you'll see it in my office. Anybody who looks closely, there's a, there's a signed album from the band Chicago that's behind my desk. And, and uh and I also even did other TV shows I did would kind of work in a little little bit of the, the band Chicago as well as the Cubs into my into my stuff on set. But yeah, no, great, great, great guys and a great, great rock and roll band. Joe Montaigne with us for a few more minutes, gracious with his time. Uh, if you're willing to, he would like it, I would like it. Go to give.specialolympics.org to make a donation, uh, something that's near and dear to Joe's heart as well as mine. And Joe, um, let's go to 1987. I, I'm not sure of this, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you uh, did a game when Harry Carey had a stroke. Uh, did you do a game with Steve Stone? They had celebrity uh, co-broadcasters co with Steve at that time. Did you do one of those games? I do. I, 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 not that I can recall. I don't remember being up in the booth okay. with Steve. I mean, I met Steve, but I don't think I did that. Uh, uh, one game I did do, which, which which is kind of a landmark game at Wrigley Field, is I, I did this. I threw out the first pitch and sang the seventh inning stretch at the game that Kerry Wood struck out 20 Houston Astros and tied the wow. Major League record for strikeouts. And, and I'm sitting in my office right now, and I'm looking at the ball that he signed and dated, which arguably could be in Cooperstown because it's the, it's, it's the first pitch ball of the game. Um, you know, wow. the would, you know, tied the major league record for strikeouts. I mean, I'll yep. never forget that that day. So that, that was, that was pretty, that was in nine, May 6, 98. Yep. That that's uh, yeah, something I'm special. looking at the ball right now and I, it, he dated it and that's exactly what it says. Well, you're you're clearly the the good luck charm. You're clearly the big factor on on that day. Um, you know, I, I gotta say, Bruce, when you were going to 1987, I got excited because me, I'm in I'm in high school at the time, and the movie House of Games that David Mamet wrote and directed with you and Lindsey Krauss completely changed my appreciation for film. Introduced me to Ricky Jay and the concept of a con, really, you know? And I, and just like, what a, what a puzzle and what a great con that entire movie is. And I just, I, I just had to mention how, how phenomenal I, I think that film was and how important it, it, it was at the time. You know, they just had, just about a month ago, they had a film noir uh, movie night uh, in Santa Monica, and uh, and they showed that film. And, and Man, Dave was there. Mamet spoke. I, I attended with one of my daughters, and it was the first time I'd seen the movie probably since probably since the late '80s. So that was kind of that was kind of fun. Uh, so that was it, it, it's funny you bring that up because that's I hadn't thought about that movie in a long time, but it's, it, that brought it very fresh in my mind. And yeah, it still kind of holds up. And, and I know in some in places like France, they, they consider it. You know, it's Every once in a while, they'll release in movie theaters. It's, it's, it had quite, quite, quite an impact, that film. Yeah. Joe, uh, we only have a couple more minutes left here. Uh, what, what is the impact of the uh, coronavirus in Los Angeles? How are people dealing with it in your city? Well, you know, it's the same here as, uh, as I'm sure it's there and everywhere. It's just one of these things, you know. Uh, well, I, I read something, though, that made me, it gave me pause and made me think, you know, as, as, as we all go through this, is that, 
certainly people of my age, I look at my, my parents and all, all, all my relatives of that era, that they all went through World War II, which was an incredible time of sacrifice, an incredible time of, of great demand on this country, of people having to like, and not knowing that, you know, what would happen. I mean, we, we, if you think about it, that they lost, we lost something like over 20,000 people just at Iwo Jima, just one battle, you know, where 20,000 young Americans were killed. So I'm saying this country has been through some, some terrible times and, and different generations have had to face terrible things. And they got through it, and they and afterwards, they they kind of they did it by pulling together and, and doing what they needed to do, and then and, and then going on from there and became even better and stronger. So in a way, those you know it's been thrown around that this is like wartime, and it kind of it is. You know we are at war with this virus, and all I can say is it's, we're all in this together, as everyone knows. Um, and so just as we as we ultimately, not only triumphed in World War II, but made the world a better place because of it, because we, we, we took the lead. I think it's time for America to kind of try to do that again, to like step up. And, you know, we, we faltered a little bit early on, but now we just got to kind of pull it all together and say, okay, this is the way we do things here. This is the way it's going to get done. We're all going to get through this. Um, you know, this whole, this whole country has been such a great experiment anyway. And we, we just have to show that this, this is the way... You know, this is the way we're going to go forward, and we're going to get through this adversity. That's, that's all you can do. Joe, uh, Matt, and I certainly appreciate your time. This was uh, not only totally enjoyable, but it was so much fun uh, to have you on and to talk about this. We didn't even get uh, into much much of your fabulous career, but hopefully, sometime down the road, we can do it again. Give org something that Joe and I would hope that uh, you can find in your heart to give to this uh, special Olympics uh, thing that is not obviously going to be delayed this year, just like all of our other events, but it's, it's such an important one. And uh, again, uh, we can't thank you enough, Joe, and it's great talk. Do you have a, have a safe and uh, healthy year ahead? And hopefully we'll talk to you down the line soon. That'd be great. Always fun to talk to the hometown. Take care, you guys. Take care. Thanks, Joe. Joe stay safe and stay sane. It's a, it's a good dude right there, huh? Yeah, and you know what? Uh, that was great. I mean, we could have talked to him for two hours easily, and it would have been a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, certainly entertaining to talk to Joe Montaigne. Uh, we'll, we have to take a break uh, probably in a minute or two. But your thoughts on the interview? Yeah, no, I, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And, I, yeah, we could dissect a whole bunch of different parts of his career. I want Simpsons stories. I mean, he's Fat oh, Tony gosh. from The Simpsons. Yeah. And yeah. He, insists, he insists that every time Fat Tony appears that he voices it. And he'll show up. He's like, he said, if Fat Tony belches, he wants to be the guy who belches. <laughs> you know? He just loves being a part of it so much. He has uh, such the bottom great of the hour, range, yeah. Yeah, bottom of the hour was brought to you by Northwestern football coach Fitz and the Wildcats host Nebraska and Maryland this fall at Ryan Field. Buy tickets now at nusports.com. And this segment is brought to you by Illini Care Health. You deserve quality health care. Choose Illini Care Health for health care coverage that includes free gym memberships, after school care, and school uniforms that either you or your family can take advantage of. Visit IlliniCare.com today. Illini Care Health is a health choice Illinois plan. And for those of you in quarantine looking for a movie to, to check out, House of Games, man. I, oh, I, I I cannot recommend it highly enough. Well, um, it, you know, nothing wrong with Joey Zaza and Godfather 3 either. Uh, oh, yeah, that works too. That works oh, too. Oh, God. Uh, you know, that movie is panned as the worst Godfather 
it was up for an Academy Award, believe it or not. So uh, was it? Yes, it was. And in, in the year that it came out, I think it was ninety. But uh, when it came out, uh, you know, it was panned because it didn't come close in many people's idea to one and two, which are classics. But uh, this was up for the Academy Award that year, believe it or not. And Joey Zaza was my certainly my favorite character in that one. I um, I haven't seen it since it came out, and I was disappointed with it. So yeah, I wonder how it how it holds up. Um, we'll continue on inside the clubhouse in a matter of moments. We're here until 11 when Steve Rosenblum and Mark Grudy take over right here on 670 The Score. Welcome back in on Inside the Clubhouse right here on 670 The Score. He is Bruce Levine. I am Matt Spiegel. We lead you up towards Mark Grody and Steve Rosenblum at 11 o'clock. Um, to our conversation earlier about guitar players, we could have asked Joe Montaigne about that. And if he had said Terry Kath from Chicago, uh, Transit Authority, he, he wouldn't get a fight uh, from me in terms of uh, him deserving a spot up there in the stratosphere. It's it's so subjective, isn't it, Matt? I mean, you know, yeah. everybody has their favorites. Like, the guy I listen to the most, you know, is Bloomfield. You know, and most people, you know, he's been dead for, you know, 30, 30 five, 36 years. Most people don't even know who he is anymore, but he's, you know, a young, young guy back in the day that uh, grew up on the south side of Chicago along with Paul Butterfield. And uh, they formed the Butterfield Blues Band and they hung around all the, uh, you know, all the blues joints on the south side back in the, uh, the 50s and 60s and kind of picked up all of that music. And Kind of like the first white performers that took uh, blues to an, another level at that time mm-hmm. in the 60s. And the, the, the genre kind of changed into blues rock as they, they performed forward. So, you know, fun stuff, certainly, to talk about uh, music. We would prefer to talk about some more baseball, and we will as we continue to do this show every Saturday and uh, keep you informed as to where the game's at. And tomorrow, you have a great show lined up. Talk a little bit about uh, Hit and Run tomorrow, Matt. Yeah, hit and run. Um, I, you know, I love this opportunity in the summer here to every Sunday I get to do what I want, what we want with baseball for a few hours. Um, and tomorrow, lots to talk about, and we'll be interactive about this this agreement and what baseball might look like, et cetera. But also, Joe Buck uh, will be on, and Joe these days uh, doing play-by-play of absolutely anything um, for charity. <laughs> People are sending him videos, and he's doing play-by-play of them as they as they make chicken wings my favorite is he did play by play of these two dogs as they very mildly fight take it easy wait a minute okay yeah (laughs) just they're just like it's a very mild battle over a stick um and you know joe is joe's joe's bored like the rest of us um but we'll talk we'll talk with him and 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 whenever i have a chance to talk to him i always like try to pick out a classic moment from an unbelievable career and kind of dissect um, what was happening in that moment. Um, so we'll talk to Joe Buck. And, you know, tw- 2016, Game 7 was on Fox Sports 1 the other night on what would have been opening night. And it, it was remarkable to hear, once again, the way that he and yeah. John Smoltz were pre-guessing, pre-supposing yeah. what Joe Madden might do. And, oh, boy, there's a lot there. So, it was on Marquee uh, it, Joe, as well this last week. So uh, Marquee was, showed yeah. a lot of those classic shows. 
as well. But, uh, you know, again, let's talk a little bit before we go out about uh, what the score is doing here this week uh, with Pat and Ron. And starting tomorrow with uh, the Bears game, the NFC championship uh, that the Chicago Bears won over New Orleans. Yeah, uh, so that starts tomorrow. That'll be the game is um, is the Bears beating New Orleans, uh, and and that's that's tremendous. Bears over the Saints as the Bears won the NFC and went to the Super Bowl in 2007. And then on Wednesday, April 1st, the beginning of every game from the Cubs championship chase, the postseason of 2016. You'll hear it right here on the score interactively with Pat and Ron on several times before, after, and during the game. Along with our good friend Joe Ostrowski, we have people to thank. Zach Winters, Withers for a job well done as always. Uh, you, Matt, for uh, your graciousness and uh, enjoyed doing the show with you so much every week. We thank Pat Hughes for joining us. Joe Montaigne from California joining us. You, the great listeners and people in Chicago, stay safe out there. You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Bruce Levine. I write on our website at 670thescore.com, both White Sox and Cubs. I'll see you next week. All right, Bruce, have a great week. Have a great day, everybody. Rosenblum and Grody are next with Saturday Suckage. See you for Hit and Run tomorrow morning at 9, right here on 670 The Score. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.